Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The more important reason to tell the story is not because of the bad guys, it's because of the good guys. You need stories about the people who've done it right to remember uh, what the standard ought to be in terms of civic virtue and upright bravery. That's Rachel Maddow. She's the host of The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Fresh off of passing Sean Hannity to become the most watched cable news anchor in her time slot, Maddow is out with a new book. It's called Bagman, The Wild Crimes, Audacious Cover-Up, and Spectacular Downfall of a Brazen Crook in the White House. Which brazen crook is Maddow talking about? Former Vice President Spiro Agnew. It's a fascinating story, and one that, until now, has been overshadowed by the scandals of Agnew's boss, Richard Nixon. Maddow joins me this week to discuss her new book, how she prepares for her show, and whether Trump's enablers will ever be held accountable. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Jackson, who writes, Love the show. Two questions. One, what were your reactions to Barr's press conference on Monday in which he contradicted Trump on several major issues? Two, what do you think the chances are that Trump appoints Sidney Powell as special counsel or tries to cause other similar mischief on his way out? Well, thanks for the question, Jackson. You know, I have mixed reactions to what Bill Barr is saying in his final days. Um, I'm recording this on Tuesday, December 22nd. And by the time you hear it, it will be Bill Barr's last day. And as you know, I've been a vocal critic of Bill Barr for much of his tenure as attorney general, for enabling the president, laundering the president's phrases, serving more as the president's lawyer than as the people's lawyer. But I do think, even though he doesn't deserve too much credit for doing and saying the right things, it is notable that this is a person who went a long way to promote the president's narrative about voter fraud, said all sorts of things, telegraphing the kinds of conduct that he would engage in to protect that narrative, deviating from Department of Justice policy with respect to when election investigations could commence even before an election was certified, causing the head of one section in the Department of Justice to resign from that position in protest. So he's done a lot of damage, with the Mueller report especially. But it is true that his last press conference on Monday, uh, he contradicted the president on at least four notable points. One, with respect to the sweeping cyber attack and hacking of government agencies and American companies. Unlike what the president is saying, Bill Barr says, you know, it was the Russians. 
who are almost certainly responsible. He said he doesn't see any need for there to be a special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation, now being conducted by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. Third, he said he doesn't see any need for a special counsel for election fraud cases. And fourth, he said there's no basis to seize any of the voting machines, which is one of the things that the president has been contemplating. So on four points, he's not using incendiary language, but sort of quietly, but firmly saying he has a different point of view. Maybe he's emboldened because his days are coming to an end and he can go back to retirement. Maybe he's fed up with what the president has said and done. I think it's you know a bit more of the first. Maybe he's somewhat concerned about his reputation. And on the question of whether or not he appoints Sidney Powell as special counsel, I don't know quite what that means. For someone to have all the sort of attributes and privileges and protections of a special counsel, that has to be done by the Attorney General of the United States. And there are regulations that pertain to what those responsibilities are and what those protections are. As we saw, for example, most notably in the case of Bob Mueller and the Russia probe, Bill Barr has said he sees no need for it. So in the next 24 hours from the time of this recording, you're not going to see Sidney Powell appointed to anything. Would the incoming acting attorney general, the current deputy attorney general, Jeff Rosen, have a different view? I find it hard to believe, given Sidney Powell's reputation as a lawyer in the bar, the quality of all these filings that she has made on behalf of the president. I think there's also potential optical conflict to have someone who has been working for the president of the United States to be appointed to what is supposed to be a, a an apolitical and independent post as special counsel. The whole point of the special counsel is to appoint someone because there is a, an existing conflict of interest within an administration or within a particular case. And to appoint Sidney Powell, who seems to be a confidant who has the ear of the president and has also represented him in various election matters, seems silly. Now, the president could issue a piece of paper on which he calls Sidney Powell special counsel, spelled correctly or spelled incorrectly, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. But that wouldn't afford her any special protections. It wouldn't afford her any power. She wouldn't have subpoena power. She wouldn't have access to a grand jury. So maybe he does that for PR purposes and because he likes what she has to say. But either way, she's not getting appointed to anything of any significance and real weight or power. And at the end of the day, I don't even think the president will do it as an informal matter either because it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. So before we get to the interview, I do want to say for the record something about last week's show. I need to make a public mea culpa, a public apology to all of my fans and listeners, the people who rely on Stay Tuned with Preet for credible, legitimate, fact-based, evidence-based news analysis, etc. And so here goes. Last week during my conversation with Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, for some reason we got to discussing music. And for some other reason that I can't remember, he started talking about non-grammatical moments in songs and music. And I chimed in off the top of my head. What's that uh, old song, um, Neil Young? There ain't no one for it to give me no name. That that always bothered me. <laughs> like, what's that preposition? <laughs> what? And so later in the day, when the episode was being cut, it turns out that member of our team, David, at the ripe old age of 26, caught the error. The song to which I was referring, A Horse With No Name, is not Neil Young. It's not even Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. That 1971 track, A Horse With No Name, was actually written by Dewey Bunnell and performed by his band, America. It was late in the day, but because we care about standards, there was a discussion of whether or not we should edit the Neil Young out, I should re-record. And I decided, you know what, I'll live with the mistake 
And if anybody notices, I'll make a correction next week. And it's not that big a deal. It wasn't like I got something in the Constitution wrong. It's just a song from 1971. <laughs> and I will say we heard from lots and lots of people. You folks are a very fastidious bunch. We got tweets. We got emails. We got a lot of tweets and a lot of emails. We got one email from a listener, David, who wrote, Hi, Preet. Love your show. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Neil Young did not write Horse With No Name. Credit for writing this masterpiece of the American songbook belongs to Dewey Bunnell, who performed in the band America. Not sure if he was high when he wrote it, but it is a great song regardless of its less than perfect grammar. Respectfully, Dave. I went on Twitter to admit my error. In some ways, that only intensified the criticism. Twitter user Andy Oreck wrote, I almost pulled off the side of the road to write you immediately. Twitter user Toppin Jane wrote, was just listening to this, put it on pause so I could come read you the riot act. Happy to see you'd already self-corrected. And some other folks, and I hope they're kidding, but they seem kind of let down. David Hollis, NYC, hard to live down. Opland 67, people will eventually forgive you. SZ Ringel, I'm shocked and dismayed. We also got an interesting question from Twitter user Arnie Lane, who said, I'm curious, is your male mostly young fans pissed that you tagged him with that song or America fans looking for proper credit? And he writes, by the way, that is among the top five worst songs of all time. Hashtag name the damn horse. So I'm not going to take a position. I think actually it's a pretty decent song, which is why I remember it. But for the record, it was mostly angry Neil Young fans. Now, in my defense, and maybe I don't have much of a defense here, it has been a long time since I've heard the song. And I will note that there were a lot of people who also wrote that they had made the same mistake for some portion of their life. So I thank you for sharing in my error. And in fact, the lead singer of America, Dewey Bunnell, has himself noted the similarity and the confusion. He was asked once during an interview not that long ago, when did you first hear people say, boy, I thought that was the new Neil Young song, referring to a horse with no name? And Bunnell says... Pretty well right away. I mean, we were... Certainly, he was in our orbit, in our musical orbit. Um, it was like a great discovery. CSN's first two albums, I guess, were out already. And Neil Young, we were fully aware of. The first Neil Young solo album was just, was just a masterpiece. His, his work is terrific. So those were really right here and in the foreground. I've never denied being heavily influenced by Neil. Got that? I've never denied being heavily influenced by Neil. And here's another interesting fact that I posit in my defense. When America's song, A Horse With No Name, went to number one in the early 70s on the Billboard Hot 100, guess what song it toppled? None other than Heart of Gold by Neil Young. Again, I apologize in this holiday season. No offense meant I love America and I love Neil Young. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer, 
and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Rachel Maddow is my guest this week. She's the host of The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. In 2018, Maddow and producer Michael Yarvitz released Bagman, a riveting seven-part podcast about the criminal investigation into former Vice President Spiro Agnew, which ultimately led to his resignation in 1973. The podcast was so popular that Maddow and Yarvitz have now written a book of the same name with additional material. Today we discuss that book, the state of the present-day Justice Department, and Maddow's unique role in media. Rachel Maddow, welcome to the show. Preet, it is really, really great to be here. It's an I was flabbergasted to be asked. Thanks for having me. Well, I will say that this is long overdue. I'm very excited. And I'm excited especially by the fact that you are appearing on my show before I have ever appeared on your show. <laughs> I can't That's get you. That's in part because of contractual <laughs> uh, issues. But it's, it's great to meet in the, in the world of audio, at least. Indeed. And those contractual obligations should be revisited because you'd be great with me on TV. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Um, you have talked about me before in absentia, which I, I don't know if that's a violation of the Constitution or not, <laughs> um, <laughs> the Confrontation Clause. And every time you do, I get the most texts and emails from people saying, Rachel Maddow's talking about you. Although she's saying nice things, and sometimes, uh, I think it's usually nice things. My kids were very excited. I don't think I've ever had reason to say anything not nice about you. No, no, you. you've, been, you've yeah. been very nice. Yeah. You've, you've had a lot of questions. Yes. So I'm sort of glad I can't come on there because I'm worried you're going to ask me tough questions that I won't <laughs> be able to answer. So I was, I was explaining to my kids over the weekend, who were teenagers and, uh, and watchers of the news, because they have no choice in this house, and they were very excited and impressed that Rachel Maddow was going to be my guest. And then I started to tell them about the subject matter of the book, which, by the way, it's a great book title, great book cover, Bagman, The Wild Crimes, Audacious Cover-Up, and Spectacular Downfall of a Brazen Crook in the White House. And it's not about Donald Trump. <laughs> it's, about, it's about a totally different guy. And they, you know, are kind of students of history. Uh, 19, 17, and 15 are their ages. And they had never heard about any of this stuff. Oh, wow. So, you know, th these, are, these are kids who take history and, you know, pay attention to the news and, and think about what's happened in the past. And it is true what you've said, both in the podcast, which was excellent, and the book, which is excellent. The story of Spiro Agnew and his corruption kind of got overshadowed by the corruption of that other guy, <laughs> Richard yes. Nixon. And before I start asking a lot of questions about the book, it is also my, I should disclose to the public that you asked and I happily agreed to provide a blurb for the book. So I'm on the back of the book. And as I told you before we started recording, I don't think there is any other book in the Library of Congress that has on the cover and the, and the back the names Rachel Maddow, Preet Bharara, and Ben Stiller. <laughs> that is a combination that will probably never happen again. So <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. So first big first question, how is the story of Spiro Agnew so little known? Well, I think that if you are going to, I don't know, let's say like mug a little old lady, 
um, or uh, knock over a bodega or something. Like the best that you could hope for is that you did so while the world's most audacious bank heist or art heist was going on on the same block. You know what I mean? Like, right. you still committed. This is my chance. Yes, exactly. This is my chance. And it's um, it's like being a, a, a windstorm that came in and did a whole bunch of damage the day before the hurricane wiped out the town. In the wreckage, you can't see which fell first. He is overshadowed, and the the lessons, I think, of the Agnew era, more importantly, are overshadowed because they so they, they happened in the middle of and adjacent to Watergate. When I first got interested in the story, I assumed that Agnew's, either that Agnew's crimes were Watergate adjacent, or at least that it was the Watergate investigation that turned up whatever it was that Agnew did that was so wrong. I was surprised to learn that it was from a a totally different universe of crime, a totally different universe of investigators and prosecutors. It was a totally separate matter that only bumped into Watergate when it came time for the attorney general to uh, weigh his options, knowing that um, contextually it was important that the president might be out soon because of the Watergate scandal. What are the odds? What's the probability that you have two significant, widespread, completely independent (laughs) areas of criminal conduct in the White House on the part of the two most important people in the country, arguably? I'm reminded of that Stephen Wright joke, which I will mangle. Because, you know, I read somewhere once that the odds of there being a bomb on your plane is like one in 300 million. The odds of there being two bombs on your plane is like one in 60 billion, which is why when I fly... I carry a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I just wanted to tell that joke. It's not really that apropos of the story, but I like Stephen, Stephen Wright joke. So thanks for indulging me. It's a, it's a little bit like that scene in The World According to Garp, too, where the plane comes and smashes into the barn. And he goes, I'll take it. What are the odds of that happening again? <laughs> <laughs> so Spiro Agnew is a sort of local Paul in Maryland when he first gets noticed. He makes his way to the governorship of Maryland, right? Mm-hmm. And before we get to how he gets on the ticket, just describe for folks the nature of the crime. And there's a big hint in the title of the book. <laughs> yes. Bagman, right? So th- we're not talking some sophisticated, you know, offshore money laundering kind of thing. What's what's the basis of the, the crazy stuff that Spiro Agnew was doing long before he became vice president? You know, it often gets shorthanded as a kickback scheme, but I feel like that's way too generous to the kingpin here because it's not like people were kicking him back money because they so appreciated his service or his assistance. He was running a bribery and extortion ring where you couldn't get a contract, first from Baltimore County and ultimately from the state of Maryland, without paying him in cash a percentage of the value of the contract. And it was... It's the kind of corruption that I think the people who carry it out think is more harmless than it is. But the people who are victimized by it, it tears them apart because they are forced to become part of a criminal enterprise that they don't, they weren't offering bribes. They were, those bribes were demanded of them. But he starts doing this with the architecture and engineering firms in, in Maryland. And he sets up this system where he literally has a, a bag man, a guy who brings him the cash. And uh, that guy, you know, lets all the 
lets all the contractors know that this is the system, visits them, leans upon them, collects their money, puts it in a bag or puts it in an envelope in some cases, stashes it away for Agnew and then brings it to Agnew at Agnew's demand. Part of the uh, part of what was his downfall was that a lot of the people who he was extorting this money from were not just good businessmen, but meticulous in their record keeping and um, <laughs> meticulous even in their record keeping about the bribes that Agnew was They wrote it all him. down. They wrote it all down, like amounts, dates, who they gave the money to. And uh, there was, there's one document that we published in the book where the fourth column on the right side of it is remarks, which is like a thing I remember <laughs> about that day when I was paying that bribe. But this was not for the purpose of later blackmail or something else. This was, they're just meticulous bookkeepers. Yes. Yes. Much to Agnew's chagrin. <laughs> so he's doing all this sort of bribery kickback stuff. There's no real investigation of it, but it's, you know, somewhat known in the community. Then along comes Nixon running for president in 68. And in April of 68, as you write in the book, multiple tragic things happen, but, but one of, in that time period, but one of them is that Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. And Agnew, as the governor of Maryland, engages in very heavy-handed tactics to prevent, in his mind, widespread violence. And as you point out in the book, that catches the eye of the Nixon team. Explain what happened and why Nixon wanted to pick this guy with what seems like very little vetting to be on the ticket with him. I think the thing that worked for Agnew to, to catapult him into national contention at that point was not just his heavy handedness toward protesters and rioters um, in, in Maryland in 68, but it was the way that he showboated it in racial terms. So the way, the way that Agnew became governor was itself a, a, a mess. The Maryland politics at the time was basically Democratic politics. And there were two Democratic machines in Democratic politics. And they basically shot themselves in the foot in 1968, or excuse me, in the early 60s, because they got into a Democratic machine on Democratic machine war. They destroyed each other. And they ended up really not being able to field a real candidate for governor in Maryland. And the Democrat on the ballot was an also-ran crazy guy, perennial candidate who was literally endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. That's who was running as the Democrat because of things going wrong in Democratic politics in Maryland. Agnew ran as the Republican. And, you know, anybody who didn't want the Klan guy voted for Agnew. And so Agnew came into office having had a lot of Black support, having had a lot of crossover Democratic support, having had just a lot of support, period, from people who weren't nuts. And that created this uh, expectation or this sort of reductive false idea about him that he was a moderate, especially on racial terms. He wasn't at all. Um, he was actually a pig in, in racial terms. And the fact that he showed that off and sort of really performed his racist showboating, in particular for television in 1968, and that that was against expectation, and so it was newsworthy that this guy who everybody expected to be one way was the other, that is what caught the attention of a young eagle-eyed Nixon aide named Pat Buchanan, who liked what he saw. Oh, whatever happened with that guy? Yeah, I don't know, into obscurity. Um, and what's also going on at this time, obviously, that plays a part in the equation, is you have the candidacy of George Wallace, and they wanted to counteract that racist. 
That's what they were, that's what Pat Buchanan was tasked with doing, basically, for Nixon at that point, was figuring out a way to protect Nixon's racist right flank um, while he was running against a, a, a devout segregationist in George Wallace. And Buchanan's idea was that, you know, Wallace was always going to win the Deep South, but with somebody like Agnew on the ticket, maybe they could carry the Middle South. And it's true, they did. And they believed part of that was Agnew's appeal uh, as somebody who would basically yell at black leaders and blame black people for everything. Was there any other vetting of Agnew? And I guess my other, my other question is based on your understanding of how vetting works now, if there had been the kind of vetting we do now, other than the Sarah Palin episode, <laughs> would, would, would red flags have been raised if someone was so blatantly and brazenly accepting money in bags from you know, multiple business people in his state? It, I don't, we don't know what vetting was done on the Nixon side. We know that there were other contenders who seemed like much more likely picks right up until the very end. And Nixon, in fact, did only make the decision on Agnew when he was at the Republican convention in 68. And so we think that there was very little vetting, both because of the timing and also because it does really seem like it was an open secret in Maryland about this this corrupt process that Agnew was coming out of. When the prosecutors who ultimately um, nailed him started working on the case, the person they thought they were going to get, and they did get, was the Baltimore County executive who came after Agnew, a Democrat named Dale Anderson. That's who they thought their big fish was going to be. But the scheme that they uncovered that caught Anderson was a long-running scheme. And that anybody putting two and two together would know that the person before Anderson must have been in on it too, and that was Agnew. So he gets selected to be the vice presidential candidate. Nixon and Agnew win. So now, now he's in the White House. He's a heartbeat away from the presidency. He could become president. And in fact, if the world had worked differently and he hadn't been caught up in his own scandal, Sparrow Agnew would have become president, not Gerald Ford. And yet at that moment, he doesn't give up the bags of money, right? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I prosecuted cases, overseen the prosecution of thousands of cases, and, and there have been people who have more money than they could ever spend in a lifetime. And I always wonder why they commit their crimes, and I have various theories, but this one is really, it's really bizarre to me. What was going on in Spiro Agnew's head that caused him not to quit, at least at that at that moment. Right. He had the the world at the the world at his doorstep. I mean, in terms of power and I mean, even if he's that craven, all the earning power he could ever want, you know, if he ascends to the presidency and just keeps his nose clean, um, in terms of what his life would have been like thereafter, but still he's doing this penny ante bribery stuff. I mean, he's taking ca- cash stuffed envelopes in the White House. Um, one of the things that we discovered that surprised me in this story was that the, it was actually the Nixon folks who kind of stopped Agnew from really quite federalizing this scheme in a big way. Agnew at one point tried to take over all federal contracting, all federal contracting <laughs> like, in know, the Eastern Seaboard. I don't mean to laugh, but that's kind of ambitious. Yes, because he thought, like, he's like, imagine the possibilities. Think how big the envelopes will be. I mean, Maryland is kind of a small state. Yes. What if we did this for all? I mean, imagine if he got control of um, military contracting. Oh, God. How much would those toilets have cost? (laughs) (laughs) This commode is $4 million. But also the idea that, like, that's going to be the vice president's job. How would you explain that? 
You know, like, you know, there's, you know, look at the scope of the vice presidency. It's not like vice presidents do amazing things, but they do get something in their portfolio. Usually, what was Agnew's portfolio? Roads contracts in New Jersey. (laughs) What are you talking about? It's a different kind of infrastructure, you know? Yes, exactly. So he's getting cash as vice president. Maybe the president and vice president had a lot more autonomy in their personal lives back then. How is he depositing cash or is he putting it in his mattress? Just the mechanics of taking the bribes when you're in that position with so much scrutiny, how, how does that work? Yeah, you're thinking like a prosecutor. I can, <laughs> you know, what's the, what's the paper trail? Yes, exactly. Well, I think that it's, I think that he's literally using it as his cash on hand um, for the most his walk, part. His walking around money. His walking around money a little bit. I mean, the, the thing, the way the prosecutors got him um, this is, again, a misconception that I had. I assumed it was the FBI that investigated Sparrow Agnew. It was not at all. It was the Maryland prosecutors did not want to use the FBI. They were very suspicious of them and didn't think they had much to offer. They instead used IRS agents. And it was the, you know, down to the last pin investigation, the net worth investigation that the IRS agents did that followed the cash. But I mean, the part, of the, the part of the reason that it's called the book and the podcast are both called Bagman is because one of the things he did with his Bagman guys, he would tell him how many dollars he wanted. <laughs> so the guy kept the stuff in a safe deposit box somewhere and he would say, bring me three papers. And that meant he wanted $3,000. And there's records of all that stuff. So investigation heats up in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland. And what's astonishing to me uh, and, and interesting and has echoes of today are, are all the various ways in which Agnew tried to get it to stop. And, you know, I I no longer am in public service in part because I refused to take a phone call from the President of the United States, not even knowing if it would be an untoward phone call or not. And we have all these stories about Donald Trump, and so there are echoes and parallels here. And one of the reasons your book and your podcast resonate so much is because of those parallels. But it's truly jarring, the kinds of things that went on to protect Spiro Agnew. At one point, as you recite in the book, Spiro Agnew calls the Attorney General of the United States at that point, and I, I, I never can pronounce his name properly, but Kleindienst? Kleindienst. Yeah. Kleindienst. So Attorney General Kleindienst gets an angry call, or I forget if it's a call or a meeting, with the Vice President, who basically wants to get the Department of Justice just sh- to shut down whatever snooping they're doing in Maryland. And then that AG, as you recite, calls the sitting U.S. Attorney in Maryland <laughs> mm-hmm. and tells him what? Tells him to lay off, basically. Basically tells him, listen, I'm, I'm getting this pressure from the vice president's office. You shouldn't be doing this. And does he, does he lay off? No, and he doesn't. And that, the U.S. attorney there is George Bell, B-E-A-L-L. And he is all of, you know, not, not yet 35, I think, at this point, appointed by President Nixon. He's Republican royalty in Maryland. His father had been Republican U.S. senator from Maryland and then uh, lost to a Democrat. And then Agnew and Nixon made it a priority for the Republican Party for the Republicans to get that Senate seat back and to make sure that Senator Bell's son would get that seat. So the U.S. attorney's brother is now a U.S. senator and his father had been a U.S. senator. And they're absolutely, the political fortunes of the family, inextricable from Nixon and from Agnew. And then he gets this call from the AG, this young U.S. attorney, only in the only in the job, a couple of years, saying you better you better get rid of this investigation. And not only does he not follow that instruction, 
But, and this is the part, I mean, you can, you can tell me what this is like from the perspective of somebody who had that job. His line prosecutors never know that he gets that pressure. They don't know that he gets that pressure from the AG. They don't know that Bell gets that pressure from his brother. They don't know that Bell gets that pressure directly from the White House. They don't know that Bell gets that pressure from George Bush, then the head of the Republican Party. He eats all of it, absorbs it as a heat shield. And his prosecutors don't know until Mike Yarvitz and I tell them 45 years later about what we learned from Bell's archives. It's interesting to me because I think, I served as a U.S. attorney, obviously, that what he did was extraordinary and showed a huge amount of integrity. Mm-hmm. I might have also, though, uh, shielded it from the line prosecutors so that they didn't you know, even indirectly feel some intimidation or pressure or um, anxiety about it. But I would have, t- I would have told some folks, I, you know, I would have, I would have had a memo to the file, um, which I guess maybe he did. That's maybe how we explain. found out about it. He did write a memo to file, and we found it. We were the first people to ever dig it out of the Frostburg State Archives. It took a while. I mean, look, you, you, were, you, you mentioned George H. W. Bush, who at the time he was the head of the RNC. Am I right? Yeah. And he he is implored to make a call to the brother of the U.S. Attorney, who was in the senator, as you described, to try to stop the investigation. I think you, in the book, use the word obstruction. Do you think George H.W. Bush was perhaps guilty of obstruction? I, uh, I would call somebody like Preet Bharara and ask, and if that was a technical <laughs> question. I mean, I, I believe, as a layman, speaking as a layman, and then a layman's understanding of those terms, terms, I believe that it was the intention of George H.W. Bush to obstruct that investigation, or in, indeed to, to derail or end that investigation. Um, now, is that criminal obstruction of justice? I don't, I don't know what it would, I don't know what you'd have to prove in order to convince a jury of that. Yeah, I'll take a look at the files. I'll, <laughs> I'll get back to you. So at some point, there's a new attorney general because Nixon didn't have a lot of luck with his attorneys general. The first one later went to prison. Kleindienst ends up leaving in, you know, what was kind of a semi-purge at some point. And then a new attorney general comes in, Elliot Richardson who, as, as you describe and we'll discuss, was a person who was upright and honorable. How did such a person make his way into the attorney generalship under Nixon? It's act, that, I mean- It's an accident? Well, it's, you look back on Watergate now, you imagine that you're the, you're, you're the ghost of Richard Nixon looking back on Watergate. And you just think, first of all, you know, Dick, why don't you burn the tapes? <laughs> like, why yeah, did you, yeah. Why didn't I mean, you burn I'm, the I'm tapes? I'm glad he didn't. And yes. But also, why did you hire Elliot Richardson, of all people? I mean, Richardson held basically like every cabinet position in the the Nixon White House. He He was was like Leon Panetta. Yeah, they they move around. They figure you can play every position. Yeah. And they brought him in because Nixon is going through attorneys general like tissues. Um, But, you know, Richardson only ends up serving 10 months. And it's 10 days after he ousts Agnew that he himself gets um, fired by Nixon for refusing to fire the Watergate Council. So it's, I mean, Richardson burns hot and quickly um, in terms of his service as attorney general with, you know, integrity, but also just under incredible pressure. By the time he's there, Nixon is kind of nutty. Nixon, the pressure didn't wear well on Nixon. And one of the people who he most frequently took it out on was Richardson with these insane, and it seemed at sometimes perhaps drunken calls to his AG <laughs> complaining about what was going on with Watergate. And the crazy thing is, 
and, and you're very emphatic about this in the podcast because it bears repeating, all this is going on at the same time, there is a huge scandal encircling the president of the United States himself and how these people managed to keep their cool, Richardson, you know, chief among them, is kind of amazing unto itself, right? Yeah. And Richardson taking, like he's, <laughs> prosecutors in Baltimore who have uncovered this thing about Agnew uh, realize that they need to take it to the attorney general. This is a big deal. And Richardson keeps canceling on them. Um, and in, at one point, they they all show up, and it's the the line prosecutors and the U.S. attorney, and they're all waiting for him. And it's you know hours are going by, and the secretary tells them to go away, and they're like, no, we actually really do have something. But it turns out the thing that keeps that's keeping Richardson hopping is literally calls from the from the White House and occasionally from the president personally, um, telling him to make Watergate go away and to and complaining about different offshoots uh, of the of the Watergate investigation, and so. There's also this dramatic moment, which I think we forget in the Nixon history, which is that he got really sick in his second term. He ended up in the hospital with pneumonia. And Richardson thought between what he was seeing from the president's mental health and the fact that Nixon had never been known to be sick before and now all of a sudden was quite gravely sick, Richardson thought he was going to die. And if he wasn't going to die, he was likely going to be forced out of the White House or he was under no impression that Nixon would make it to the end of his second term. And the and, guy on deck is the bribe guy. Yeah. So what Screw do you Agnew. do in that circumstance? I mean, it's like, <laughs> you, go You drink fast. a lot of scotch. Yes. <laughs> and you take your Baltimore line prosecutors very seriously. Yeah. And you make sure the OLC gives you a memo that says a vice president can be indicted. Oh, so let's talk about that. I'm very excited to talk to you about that because it's right in the wheelhouse of our show and is an important inflection point in the book. So on your show, on our show, on most news and politics shows for the last number of years, Americans are now aware of the fact that there is an office called the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department, and that on two different occasions, they have provided uh, legal guidance, memos, that take the position that the President of the United States cannot be indicted, and that obviously was a big deal in connection with the Mueller report and why Bob Mueller ostensibly could not bring a charge against Donald Trump. And so there's been all this talk about the President, the President, the President. There was a memo back in Nixon's time. There was a memo back in Clinton's time. And nobody talks about whether or not it applies to the vice president. But that memo that you talk about, and I think you have a great insight on it, the last seven or eight pages of this 41-page memo address the question of whether or not a vice president can be indicted. And how do they come out? And what's your view of why it comes out the way it comes out? What we discovered, to our surprise, um, and some of this was after we did the reporting for the podcast. It was once the podcast was out there in the world. Um, and it was sparking interest from people who wanted to get off their chest what they knew about this scandal from their time adjacent to it. What we learned is that that memo could have come out either way, that uh, Robert Dixon at the Office of Legal Counsel who wrote it called the attorney general's office and said, which way do you want this? <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, isn't supposed to be the way it works, correct? Right. It's like the equivalent of, of like, yeah, I want three, I want three papers, right? <laughs> this is how I want it to come out. It is not the way it's supposed to work. It is, in fact, the way it worked. And we know it from Elliot Richardson. Elliot Richardson is gone now, as is Robert Dixon. But Elliot Richardson's top aide, J.T. Smith, told it to us, told us on the record that he's the one who took the call. And he went to Attorney General Richardson and talked to him about it. And then he conveyed back the message of this is how it should land. But the split decision aspect of it is so fascinating, right? And makes oh, it sound amazing. so political. I think I, I think I heard you say in another interview, you know, this conception that some may have that this was 
sort of, you know, given down from the Oracle of the Office of Legal Counsel, independent of political strategizing is just false, that the White House really wanted a split decision. <laughs> they wanted yes. protection for Nixon and no protection for Agnew. They wanted, so Nixon is convinced that if impeachments, if, if an impeachment process starts up in the House, it might start up for Agnew, but it, once those gears were, were, were oiled and moving, they were, it was going to come for him too. Agnew had gone to the House of Representatives and said, please impeach me. And the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives told him, no, we're not interested. We understand you're going to be indicted and we'd prefer to see you in prison. We don't want to get in the, we don't <laughs> want to get nice in the way of it. Right. And Agnew's lawyers had been saying, oh, the, it's clear in the Constitution that a vice president can't be indicted. Uh, so he must be impeached instead. The Nixon White House does not want impeachment proceedings to start against Agnew, just as the House doesn't want impeachment proceedings to start against Agnew. Um, and so they end up splitting the baby. They end up with this 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 Office of Legal Counsel memo that is designed to allow Agnew to be prosecuted so that impeachment doesn't start against him, thus keeping the wheels of impeachment not turning, thus keeping Nixon safe. However, you've then created this opportunity for the president to potentially be indicted too, and that can't be. And so weirdly, the same memo argues that the president that wasn't even the question they were told to answer. But it, the, the memo lands that that the president can't be indicted, but the vice president can be. And it's just a patchwork quilt of reasoning that is so, now looking back on it in retrospect and knowing what we know from reporting with people who were there at the moment, you can now see that it was cobbled together for that strange political moment where you had two felons in the White House <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, and you got to save one. Other. I, mean, I read that section of the memo this morning again. And uh, it basically amounts to a, well, the president's very important constitutionally. Uh, the vice presidency, they don't use these words, but it's a famous phrase people have used about the vice presidency. The vice president's job is basically worth a bucket of spit. So it doesn't matter <laughs> if he's embroiled in a criminal prosecution, the world will go on and spin on its axis. And so that's basically the reason, right? But they, the way the thing is that they boiled down the vice president's purpose as being ready to assume the powers of the presidency. Well, if a president being indicted would so they say would so you know sort of sully the president's reputation that it would make it impossible for the president to do presidential things, then why is it okay to so sully the person who's going to ascend to the presidency, whose whole constitutional purpose is to be ready for that? It just doesn't, it, it's, it's a good story, but it doesn't even logically work. I should make it clear to everybody, by the way, that every page of the book has crazy stories like this. We're just touching on a couple of them. I, I want to just jump ahead to the end. So Agnew ends up with his lawyers negotiating a deal and, you know, some people might say it was kind of a soft deal. He agrees to leave office. And then you ask this great question. You have a chapter in the book called Why'd He Do It? Which is not about why did he commit the crime, but why did he step down? And to save face, I guess, I found this to be extraordinary, and I'll, and I'll read it. On page 221 of the book, Agnew starts to spin this tale that he was worried about his own physical safety if he didn't do what Nixon wanted, which was to resign. Quote, asked if he thought there were men around Richard Nixon, either in the White House staff or in the official mechanism of the CIA, who were capable of killing a vice president of the United States if they felt he was an embarrassment, Agnew answered somberly, I don't doubt it at all. 
Agnew said that he was so fearful at the time that he bought a gun for protection. So that's pretty dramatic. What, what, do you, what did you make of that? Agnew was a piece of work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he invented this whole story. Potential that, political assassination. Of that the vice he president. was going to be assassinated by Al Haig <laughs> or by. Well, Al the Haig, CIA. that's a little more credible. <laughs> Fair enough, actually. If you were going to pick somebody to fantasize about killing you, I guess that would be the guy you'd pick. But um, he, that he was the, that, that Nixon was telling him through Al Haig that there was, that he was going to have him offed. Also, Agnew says, you know, I got a permit to carry a handgun at the time, (laughs) but I didn't actually carry the gun. I thought having a permit would be enough. It would scare off the entire CIA. Yes. And you were going to use it as a shield from their bullets. I mean, he was he was a mess. He was a piece of work and he had to be the victim. I mean, the way that he built his political power was on stoking a sense of grievance among white Americans. I know that's a very foreign concept to our (laughs) politics today. Um, But this idea of infinite victimhood, and he lived it. He didn't just preach it. And his resignation from the moment he walked out of that courthouse, having just pled NOLO, from the moment he walked out of the courthouse, it was that he was the victim, that he was victimized, that he had done nothing wrong, that it was a cabal and a conspiracy, and that people needed to rally against him because he was so put upon. And, and he never he never changed that. He never looked back from that. And in his later years, after he's long gone from the White House, he turns that sense of grievance into basically becoming an international anti-Semite for hire, where he goes on the payroll of the Saudi royal family to foment anti-Semitic hatred in the United States because it's the Jews that were trying to bring him down. I mean, he was just, he was a, had he been president, could you imagine? And the funny thing is, we're saying that in the context of Nixon. Yeah. I, I always say, you know, when, when you have people in, in an organization and you think they're terrible and I've had, you know, bosses like this before, it can always get worse. Mm-hmm. It can get worse than Trump. People think Trump is the worst thing that can happen in the country. That's not correct. No. And the worst thing that could happen to the country is to have somebody as bad or worse than Trump and to have somebody as bad or worse than William Barr helping him and shielding him. That combination is potentially deadly for the country, I think. Stay tuned for more discussion. We'll be right back after a short break. So let's fast forward to the present then, since you you bring up Bill Barr. How do you think of Bill Barr in the spectrum of people that you looked at in the Spiro Agnew story in the Justice Department? I think that Bill Barr, I mean, I don't know that we'll know the whole story until his last day, right? And who knows what's going to happen on his way out the door with the pardons that he recommended to George H.W. Bush in his first go-around as um, Attorney General, those those last-minute pardons for lame duck George H.W., you know, that's that's as much of the legacy there. So I'm hesitant to say before he's gone because I, I have a feeling these last few days might be terrible. We should timestamp this and let people know that we're recording this on Friday, December 18th. Yeah. It's not going to air for a few days. And there's already reporting this morning from Axios that a, a, hu- a huge wave of pardons is perhaps coming as soon as today. So yeah. your words and, may be prescient. And I, I think that Listen, part of the reason that I got so interested in telling this story is because Agnew's crookedness deserves remembering. And I want your, I want your teenagers, Preet, to, to know about this, to know about this guy. Um, but the, the more important reason to tell the story is not because of the bad guys, it's because of the good guys. And when you have somebody treat the office of the attorney general the way that William Barr has, 
um, with a president this malevolent. You need stories of Elliot Richardson. Um, you need stories about the people who've done it right. Uh, and U.S. attorneys like George Bell to remember uh, what the standard ought to be in terms of civic virtue and upright bravery. And Barr using the attorney general's office as often as he did to not just menace the country, but to do favors for the president, both against his enemies and for his friends, is something that we shouldn't see as a natural evolution of the office of the attorney general. We should see that as aberrant, and we should see men like Elliot Richardson as the standard. Yeah, I think you say at one point, and this is the, the general theme of my own book, it really matters who's in the job. Yes. I mean, the rules didn't change, the policies didn't change. I mean, they wrote that memo at some point in the process. But you know, basically, the state of play in terms of rules and regulations and laws was the same for Attorney General Kleindienst as it was for Elliot Richardson. What mattered was that they were, they were different people. And look, in the same way, U.S. Attorney Bell, had he been a different person, maybe none of this would have unfolded. If he had just you know, accepted the direction to let it go, we wouldn't be here. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's what Agnew fully expected to happen. A part of that sense of grievance, um, grievance and entitlement are two sides of the same coin. And he felt so entitled to not only to power, but to you know the, the, the cash flow of his, the contractors in his state. And he felt entitled um, to his own rules. And he really believed that he should get away with it. And he really could not believe that these penny-ante prosecutors, who did they think they were, uh, were taking a stand against somebody as big and important as him. And these crimes weren't worthy of, weren't worthy of anybody's scrutiny because of who he was. And to have not just an equal and opposite force to that, but to actually have a superior force to that, um, which is good law enforcement officers with the law on their side and protection from the political winds, that's what it took to knock him down. And any less from any of them, and it wouldn't have worked. Okay, enough on Agnew. Can we talk about you for a minute? Oh, no. Yes. Uh, good. So first, and I know other people say this when you speak with them, uh, I hope that you're well. Thank you for speaking so personally about COVID when your partner got the coronavirus. It was, I think it was very inspiring to a lot of people. And I think people got a sense of, of you even more than they normally get. I mean, I, I, people see you every day. You talk about the news. You, you don't often talk about things that are quite that personal to you. So I, I, I want to commend you for that. And I am correct that everyone is on the mend. Yes, Susan is, uh, she's got the long tail of symptoms, which a lot of people have with COVID, which we're going to have to talk about at some point. I mean, with 17 million people infected already in this country, the number of people, once you get symptoms, sometimes the symptoms last a long time and they're mysterious. And yeah, you don't think we should do that herd mentality? Oh God. <laughs> I know it's I, immunity, guys. Oh my God. The president's at herd mentality. I get I get emails uh, when I flub on the show. I don't know if you get, you get those. Do you get those? People, mis people misunderestimate you. <laughs> You're just trying to put food on your family. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the, the, so the symptoms they 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 last. Um and but I'm I've I've been negative this whole time, knock on wood, which is amazing. Uh, but yeah, Susan's recovering and she's gonna be fine. But thank you for asking, Preet. It's nice of you to say it that way. Um, why do you think you're as successful as you are? Oh, uh, a lot of people watch uh, you every night. Why, why, why hmm. do they tune in? I don't know. I, what motivates me to do the work that I do is mostly fear of failure, but, but I don't <laughs> Welcome know. To the club. I don't know if that's the key to my success. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I do treat every day as if I'm about to be fired. And so I'm, 
I think I, I think I know, I'm not sure that I can accept that I'm, I, I, I'm not sure I can accept the premise of the question, but I thank you for asking. Well, there's a metric, you know, millions of people watch every, every evening. I think so some recent news about your number one in your time slot. Is that true? Yeah, you can time, brag a little yeah, bit. The, the not too much because CNN might be listening to this. <laughs> exactly. The ratings bounce. I will tell you, since the election, CNN ratings have been fantastic. Um, and Fox's have been down and ours have kind of ping-ponged around. And those those things settle out in time. I, I do feel like ratings sometimes are more of a reflection of what the country is in, who the country's in the mood to spend time with. Well, okay, so let's talk, let's talk about it this way. And I know you're going to continue to be modest. But, but I saw, you know, someone, maybe more than one person has said that one of the reasons for your success and that people want to spend time with you is that you don't come across as angry. A, do you agree with that? B, is that condescending or sexist in some way? C, don't you get angry? I do get angry. In fact, um, as you said, you timestamped this. When we're talking, we're talking on, on Friday midday and on Thursday night's show, last night's show as we're speaking, I had to actually apologize both to my guest and to the viewers because I got mad and I, I felt like you could see it in the way that I was looking at the camera and talking. And I didn't mean to, but I was sort of overcome um, with anger uh, just in the subject that I was talking about, which is Pfizer saying they've got millions of doses of vaccine on the shelves and the federal government won't tell them where to send them. Um, and I just knowing that that means people are going to die for some some petty thing going wrong that the government is lying about, I get I got head up and I can actually I can sort of feel the the red rising up my neck and my face. So I do get I do get mad. Um, but it's not. I feel like it's my not my job to emote. It's my job to help you understand something. But I'm cognizant of the fact that by bringing people along in understanding things in new ways, sometimes I create emotions in other people. Um, but I don't try to perform them myself because, A, I'm not a very good actor, so I can't control it very well. And B, it's not, it's not I, I don't think it's helpful to understanding. Well, I, I agree. And People sometimes comment that, you know, I'm a fairly measured, calm guy. And some people have the misimpression that that's the only way that I am. <laughs> and that yeah. just because yeah. I don't curse on air doesn't mean I don't curse not on air. And I get angry about a lot of stuff, particularly in the last few years. Can I ask you about how you prepared the show? Because I think it's fascinating. You spend a lot of time telling stories. And they're perfectly rendered. And they have inflection points. And there's a narrative. And, you know unless this is a trade secret, which I will respect, how much of those monologues are prepared in advance or scripted or researched and how much of it are you just speaking in the moment? Oh, almost none of it am I speaking in the moment. It's all written. Um, so that takes a lot of time. Yeah, that's, that's why the job is killing me. It, it is, it, it does, it takes a long, I, I, re, I read and read and write all day. Um, and I have a fantastic crew of producers. Yes, the best, you should thank best, them producers in the business, um, in any form of television, the people who are working for me are, are, I'll put them up against anyone. Um, and they do a lot of the heavy lifting, but I spend all day reading and writing every day. And it's, you know, thousands of writing like a 25 minute a block or sometimes that's a, a lot of, it's a lot of words. It's a lot of words to produce on a daily production schedule. But this sometimes happens because I've seen it. Some news will break sort of later in the day. You go live at nine, right? Mm-hmm. Some news will break later in the day, you know, five, six, maybe 7 p.m. How does that work when you want to talk about that new thing at 9 p.m.? Got to throw it out. I mean, 
I say that there's, I say that everything that I'm doing is written. There are definitely rolling news, rolling breaking news circumstances where there isn't time to write anything. For example, when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, that was, uh, we got news of that quite close to airtime. And um, I knew that we were going to be going into rolling coverage. I had a lot of emotions personally about that. Um, and with that, there was no time, there was no time to write anything. I mean, I, I knew enough about her life. We put together some biographical, historical details in terms of her life that uh, would help in tell storytelling. But that was, you know, that was an hour with no commercials and with no script, pulling it together in, in a live ad-libbed way. But that's very, very rare. It's other, other than that, it's just, it's writing. And you do sometimes have to throw stuff out and write stuff very fast. I'm, I do, a, this, I'm an unhealthy person and this is part of why. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm all, I, I literally end up running into the studio every night and I'm always late and I'm always re-editing stuff in commercial breaks and everything. It's very unhealthy. Is there a particular subject or topic that you like covering more than other things? I do like stuff that has history in it, largely because I find it calming. Um, even when stuff happens that is literally unprecedented, finding something in history or in the, the, even the contemporary experience of another country, say, uh, to me is grounding. To have an allegory um, or some sort of understanding of a precedent or relevant context makes me see the current circumstances more clearly. Um, it's not prescriptive, but it is, it's grounding in a way that I find very satisfying. You know, further to that, is it my imagination? Maybe it is because I've been doing these kinds of interviews now instead of prosecuting people. But is it my imagination or is it, is it the case that Americans in general are thinking more about history in the last two or three years? Hmm. My imagination. Well, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a good question. I mean, in crisis, do we turn to history to help us understand? I do. I feel like I'm seeing a lot more John Meacham than I used to see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I some you know there's a thing that happens in in cable news, which is like, is this a big enough moment where you need to bring in the you know the eminence? Like, do we do we need a gravitas booking here? Right. Um, and I wouldn't usually, know because I'm never that booking. <laughs> you will be. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's you know usually that's like you know it's a state funeral or it's an inauguration or it's some big occasion. But like with this president. I mean, pick a day. Is it the, you know, do you have to you have to call in the gravitas because he just got impeached or because he, you know, just said that we should lock up our political opponents or because he just pardoned his national security advisor? Like there's all these moments that feel like kind of end of the world moments that would actually be the plot apex in any bad political thriller. Um, but they're just, you know, it's Tuesday in the in the Trump administration. It's just crisis to crisis to crisis. And so maybe we have been calling on, we've sort of proverbially been booking the gravitas and we've been, we've been looking to history to help us. Maybe that's true. Can I ask you a question that may appear rude, but it's not because I want to set a predicate for my next question. <laughs> when you talk on your show and you give your opinions and you talk about the things that you talk about uh, as a general matter or as an absolute matter, do you believe all the things that you say? Huh. Yes. And, and why is that? Why, why, why do you feel the need to believe the things you say? A, because I'm a bad actor and people will, people will know if I'm lying, right? Acting is lying to a certain extent and I, um, I'm a bad liar. 
uh, I mean, I will let me let me let me fine tune my response. I never say anything I don't believe. Sometimes I say things in a nicer way than I feel. So is that lying? No, but that's but that's in a generous direction because the reason I ask the question is um, I want to ask you, and maybe you maybe you'll name names, maybe not, maybe I'll name names. And it's a feature of the Trump presidency and of Fox News and some other folks who want to get ratings. And it would be one thing if they believed what they said, but I get the distinct feeling that there are some people who are in your business, just in different places, who say things for a particular business reason or a ratings reason or to please an audience of one. Uh, And maybe I'm being too generous to them and they don't believe it. Case in point, someone who you know well and on whose show you you used to appear when it was a different kind of show, Tucker Carlson. What happened to that guy? I think Tucker is actually more consistent than he gets credit for. I think that Tucker has been espousing a lot of this stuff for his, basically for his whole career, but from a more obscure place or a more playful or um, uh, less influential post. Um, And he's now espousing the sort of the same things he always has. Um, And it's resonating differently because of where we are in our politics and because the president speaks the same language. But if you're asking, does he really think that people shouldn't get vaccinated? Uh, I don't know what's, I don't know what's, what you should hope for there. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, do you, it's do you bad hope either that he's, way. It's bad hope either that he's way. consciously lying or do you hope that he believes it? I mean, either way, it's bad. Um, and it's obviously it's going to cost people there. It's going to cost lives. Do you think about the competition in, in any particular way? Not really. I mean, we all pay attention to the ratings, both absolute and and relative. But I can't, like, I have too much to do. You know what I mean? To, like, factor in anything about what other people are doing. Uh, I don't watch other people's shows. And when people are doing well in the ratings or not well in the ratings, I notice. But it doesn't, I I can't quite figure out how I would reasonably sort of cant what I'm doing to account for that or to capitalize on it. Is anything going to bite anybody? You know, we are starting to see the hypocrisy be doubled down upon. You know, all of a sudden, people are upset about the use of of an F word. People care about niceties after tolerating and enabling just despicable conduct and name calling by this president. And now they're going to turn it around. Is there going to be any price to pay? How How are you going to cover the sort of change of heart with respect to decency and morality and everything else that you're gonna start hearing from these Republicans? Hypocrisy is hard to cover. And, you know, double standards are hard to cover. Why is I that? Mean, why is that? You, you play, you know, the one clip and then you play the second clip. And I guess there's nothing much to say after that. Exactly. I mean, it only works if you're, if you're ashamed. You know what I mean? Like to have, when Mitch McConnell stands up and, you know, says that the Merrick Garland caper was the greatest thing he ever did in public life. And that, of course, if the vacancy opened up in the fi- in the final year of a Republican president being in office, of course, he would fill that vacancy. I mean, there's, you show him the, you, you hit him with the gotcha and he says, yeah, got me. Yeah. You know, eat it. There, it only works in the context of shame. And when it's just about power, when it's just about doing stuff because you can, those people just, they, you, you can't, inf- I don't think you can influence the behavior of, of politicians like that. You just have to get rid of them. You just have to get them out of office. 
because once once you don't once you admit cheerfully that you stand for nothing other than your own power and ability to wield it then there's no use in in arguing with you about your decency you've made the argument yourself and so you just need to you just need to have your career ended so does trump fade from the scene in some significant way or does he remain center stage you know, I feel like I'm a bad judge of this because I was not aware that he was a celebrity before he ran for president. <laughs> you were not an apprentice watcher? I was not an apprentice watcher. And while I knew who Donald Trump was, like I remember when he when he started running for president in 2015, I remember going to a news meeting with my staff when we used to have in-person meetings and like bringing them this news that I had discovered, which is that Donald Trump has a very unusual hairdo. And like my, so my whole staff is like, hello, like also water is wet. Yes, of course. Like that's the thing about him. There's a whole Simpsons episode where they go inside the hair. Dude. <laughs> I had no idea. I'd never. So you're not looked, a tabloid reader either. I had not looked closely at him. No. And so will he go, will he go back to the type of celebrity he had before the president? I didn't understand why he had that then. But so maybe um, once he's president, nobody's sort of contractually obligated to pay any attention to him anymore once he's no, once he's no longer in the White House. But um, we'll see. What do you think? Do you think he's going to disappear? So I think no, but I see some people who I respect and who are smart who think yes, because once you lose power, you just don't attract as much attention. And the reason I think he's not going to fade uh, is in part because of what we've seen the last couple of months. He's still paid a lot of respect, even though he's a lame duck by every measure and by every court case, and people are getting out of the way, and he still has an enormous amount of influence over his base. And so when you have the next generation of people who want to run in 2024, still kowtowing, you know, these two senators in Georgia, for example, because they don't want a mean tweet, because that will hurt their own political uh, fortunes. That's an incredible amount of influence that the former president will have. And on top of that, if he says he's running again in 2024, he's kind of a real relevant figure, right? He could be the president again. And that campaign, you know, starts not, not that long from now, right? The campaign for 2020, and the, this president will, will wage the campaign the whole four years. So as much as I would like to forget him and move on from him and not hear about him much, I'm not sure that that will be possible if he set, A, because of his own political plans and B, because of the deference he's paid by all these other spineless Republicans. Yeah. I, I think the X factor here is Fox News because Fox News has been, I've described it in the past as like the jet engine of the conservative movement and media machine to which the rusted out hulk of a Ford Pinto is attached. (laughs) And the Ford Pinto is the Republican Party. And Fox and the conservative media movement have really been dragging Republican politics behind them for a long time in, in terms of the, the continuity of the messaging, the propulsive force of, you know, building, whether it's, you know, culture war concerns or, um, you know, fear of violent crime or whatever, whatever their moment, you know, war on Christmas, whatever it is. And if Fox News sort of sucks wind in the, in the, in the late Trump or rump Trump period, and instead the president is promoting these fringier, much less mainstreamable, conservative, sort of extremist media outlets. I see that as potentially being 
really determinative in terms of the strength of the Republican Party. If there isn't a place for Republican politicians to go, that is the same place they all go to reach the entire conservative viewing public, and they all go to different places, and some of them are absolutely nutball, and some of them you can only get by tuning in your tinfoil helmet just the right time. Right then that's going to that's gonna have a real, I think it's going to potentially have a schismatic effect within, within the Republican Party, draw, driving different parts of the party in different directions, depending on which viewership they're trying to attract. So if he really succeeds in blowing up Fox, that's going to change the Republican Party a lot. And that's really going to change the landscape of sort of who's allowed to run right. and put together a real a movement towards a campaign for 2024. Well, it's fascinating stuff. I could talk to you for many, many hours. When I finally have my drive time radio show, we'll have you on for three hours, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> Until then, uh, thanks for being on. It's a real treat for me, a real honor. I'm glad we finally got to spend some time together. Preet, you're a real hero of mine. And I, uh, this was an honor to have this much time with you. And thank you again for blurbing um, Bagman. Thank you. Absolutely. The book, Bagman, The Wild Crimes, Audacious Cover-Up, and Spectacular Downfall of a Brazen Crook in the White House by Rachel Maddow and Michael Yarvitz. Thanks again, Rachel. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Preet. My conversation with Rachel Maddow continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So to end this penultimate show of the year, by the way, you can never overuse the word penultimate, I thought I'd reflect for a moment on the show itself. And as you may appreciate, I love all aspects of the show, every part of the show. I love answering your questions. I love hearing what you have to say. I love your commentary. I always love the interview. But I also really enjoy and love something that we on the Stay Tuned team call the button. What's the button? The button is this few minutes of commentary or discussion I have with myself at the end of the show. And typically it's something that has touched me or moved me in some way that maybe didn't get a lot of attention and that I feel some connection to and that I'd like to share with the audience. That's the button. This is a button about the button. So it's very meta. And in case you're wondering, it was not part of the structure of the show in its initial planning. The first show featured Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense and CIA director, in an interview that was very special, I thought, and I was happy that he was the inaugural guest but the week of that interview, there was some news that touched me in a particular way, and I wanted to share it with everyone. And so at the end of the show, I just sort of talked about it. It involved two Indian American victims of a hate crime, one of whom was killed in a bar shooting. And at the time I did the interview, a day or two before that, the widow of the Indian man who had been killed was going to be deported. But a Republican congressman, Kevin Yoder, who has not always been a friend to immigrants, I noted, stepped in and made sure her visa status would remain intact in the face of her husband's death. And as I said at the time, that is something worth calling out and thanking the congressman for. And then the next week, I told the story of Shahid Khan, owner of the NFL team, the Jaguars, who happens to be a Muslim immigrant from Pakistan, and who in the midst of the NFL kneeling protests, took a knee with his black counterparts, even though at the time, he was a well-known supporter of Donald Trump. And I thought that worth calling out too. And in the weeks since, not every week, but most weeks, I end the show with something that moved me in some way or provides inspiration in some way that I think deserves calling out. 
And thinking back on the various buttons over the last three some odd years, I realized there's a disproportionate number of them that are focused on the loss of some person. Sometimes those have been icons like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or John Lewis or William Goldman. Sometimes it's been someone who's close to me that you've never heard of, like my former colleague at SDNY, Patrick Egan, who died far too young, or my father-in-law, who passed away in March, or Larry Byrne, who I spoke about just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, I was moved by a listener who called in to talk about the Larry Byrne button. Hey, Preet, this is Basilea Brownell from Seattle, Washington. You did it again. It is my favorite part of your absolutely super informative, calm, funny, stay tuned podcast. The favorite thing is when you speak from your heart at the very end, sometimes you have these just wonderful things. And today talking about your friend who gave you something very special and very small by standing up for you when you were a young lawyer and saying, no, you do not need to pull an all-nighter and reminding us all that those small acts of kindness matter tremendously. You rock. Thanks, Preet. Bye-bye. I'm particularly fond in the button of talking about young people who are doing impressive and amazing things. I talked about that after Parkland. I talked about a group of young people who had invented a board game that they were sending to, I think, state legislators around the country, to members of the Supreme Court, That would shine a light on the terrible practice of gerrymandering. Inspiring acts are always a good basis for a button. I talked about something that was pretty well known, but deserved a shout out also. Robert Smith, who told a graduating class at Morehouse that he was taking care of all their student debt. Lately, I've been recording the button in my home, as you know, before that in the studio, but I've done the button from far-flung places, if the mood has struck me. When I was on vacation last December in Israel with my family, I recorded a button about anti-Semitic activity in New York. I also will time to time talk about my own family and things personal to myself, like the House Road 2020 project I did with my sons back in August. Also, my kids' participation in extemporaneous speaking. I love talking about that too. Perhaps my most personal button was in the wake of finding out that the President of the United States, I don't think knew the words to the national anthem or God Bless America. I shared with you all that after 9-11, I began singing that song to my own daughter, and then my sons after they were born. People have sometimes asked, how come you don't do that thing at the end of the show on occasion? And the reason is it has to feel right. It has to strike me in a particular way. It has to feel authentic. So I don't do it every week. I have to kind of feel it. Otherwise, it doesn't feel right. Anyway, we thought it would be interesting to explain what this thing is at the end of the show, why I do it, and what it's about. And by the way, you can help me out. If you come across stories that strike you and you think will strike me in a particular way, send them to me. I'd love to hear about them, even if I can't mention them on the show. Email them to us at staytunedcafe.com. Thanks for sticking around to the end of a show, which sometimes goes over an hour, to hear these little buttons. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Rachel Maddow. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. 
Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-247-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.